Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm your hostess, Lori Adams-Brown, and you are listening to episode 13. I want to tell you about Anchor because it's what I use to record these podcasts. Why do I use it? Number one, it's free. Number two, it's simple. I don't have a lot of tech skills, but I don't need to because Anchor does a lot of the work for you. And as you know, many of you who know, I'm a career woman. I do this as a hobby on the side in my free time. And I love my kids and my family, and I don't want it to take more time than it needs to. (laughs) So thank you, Anchor, for that. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And so they also distribute it for you anywhere you hear podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the different ones. You can make money from it if you choose to with no minimum listenership. And it's got everything you need to make the podcast in one place. So I would encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. My guest on today's podcast is Michelle Ferrigno Warren, who is the Advocacy and Strategic Engagement Director for the Christian Community Development Association in Chicago. She also is on uh, an adjunct faculty at Denver Seminary teaching in their justice and missions program. She teaches political advocacy and doing justice in the public square. She's an author of a book called The Power of Proximity, Moving Beyond Awareness to Action. She has been an advocate for immigrants and the poor for many, many years and a real leader and thought leader in this area. She's worked in Christian community development for 27 years as an educator, a nonprofit manager, and public policy specialist. She has a bachelor's in math, but she also has a master's in public administration from the University of Colorado. She is an immigration, education, and human service policy specialist. You are going to just love this conversation that I have with her today because she has so many areas that's going to influence us and our understanding of what it means to really advocate on a micro and a macro level when it comes to immigration. She's also a mom to three adult children. She and her husband, David, started Open Door Ministries in Denver and they have uh, just a beautiful life that they have going on there in Denver. She lives in a very uh, diverse zip code of Denver and, and loves where she lives and talks a lot about it and um, in the work that she does and just the advocacy that she does. So welcome to the show, Michelle Ferrigno Warren. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Lori, it is so good to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, it's such an honor. And um, even though we haven't met in person, we have a mutual friend, Lori Briscoe. So shout out to her for connecting us. But I know that you're doing some really important work and you've done so for years. And so why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, thank you again for the opportunity to speak. And I'll shout out to Lori and Ed Briscoe in my in my city <laughs> of Denver, Colorado. I live in Denver, Colorado. I've lived here for almost 25 years. And I consider myself a neighbor, a neighbor and a friend. Um, and that's a really big deal. I'm a Christian. And the second greatest commandment after loving God is to love your neighbor as yourself. About 25 years ago, when we moved to Denver, I became a neighbor of immigrants. Uh, we, my husband and I are part of a shared philosophy of ministry to the poor. Called the, It's a part of the Christian Community Development Association. And so wanted to 
work and worship and live in the same community. And we moved to the neighborhood. It, the zip code is 80219. And if you are going to hear like NPR stories nationally about things that are happening in an unimmigrant community, it is not unusual to be about three blocks from my house at the corner of Federal and Alameda. So I live in an immigrant community. I live in a poor community, but I live in a beautiful community. It is a, an amazing fabric of diversity and incredible humanity learning and living um, life alongside each other. And so when I say I want to be a neighbor and I want to love, it means I'm curious and I, I know I have a lot to learn. And so just being a student of my neighborhood has put me in a lot of unique places. As far as like bio kinds of things, I, um, I have a master's in political, uh, I mean, in public administration and do quite a bit around politics and policy formation and multi-sector collaboration. And it's just a lot of fancy words to say a few things. One, in my neighboring, I understood that individual restoration is important, that community development and nonprofit work um, was really important. But the longer I was doing the work, realized that there's a lot of system issues and that I needed to be a bit smarter and more attuned to how to reverse the the oppression and brokenness that was embedded in my community and the systems that kept them embedded. So yeah, just, I, I work in, in that world and work on systemic issues. Mostly um, those systemic issues are used, are rooted in racial injustice. And so that is the intersection of much of the work that I do is around faith and racial justice. Oh, it's so awesome. It's just so great to have you on because I'm really excited to take this deep dive with you into some of the very specific areas that not only are happening in your community, but just things that you've seen. And so I know that part of like what you mentioned is you, you are wanting to be an advocate for immigrants and, um, and advocacy has been a huge piece of what you've been doing. And so I just wanted to know if you would say maybe in your own words, what you would say is happening right now in the United States in the area of immigration, like how would you paint that picture for us? Yeah. Well, right now is it's just another unique season. I think history will remember us for this moment on how we did or did not treat immigrants, um, and I don't. It will not be kind um, in this moment. The problems or the issues around immigration and migration are not limited to the United States. We have more people displaced around the world now than we did even after World War II with such a disruption and people were, were all moved across the world trying to get back to their home countries or try to resettle in a new country. We have more people globally displaced now than ever before in history. And so we have a, we have a global problem of so much pushing of, of people, whether it's through climate issues, that's, there's some legitimate things where people are moving because of the inability to farm or places underwater. And, and so climate definitely is a push factor. Others are just really oppressive governments. Um, other is famine. There's a lot of reasons that people are pushed or realize that if I stay, it is worse if I stay for my children, for our future than if I go. And many, many actually are fleeing for their lives and they are considered more refugee asylee, cannot, you know, be in their home country, do not feel like they can, and they are leaving. And so that's happening all around the world. Back in after World War II, there was a refugee commission put together. That's where we get most of our refugee laws was the United Nations had taken down the League of Nations and said, we're going to come up with a new way forward 
and so that if ever there was a time like a terrible dictator like a Hitler, which is, you know, or a Stalin, what we were seeing back at that time, that we would work together across the globe to make sure that no one would not be welcome somewhere if they were fleeing religious persecution, political, and there's a whole list of things, you know, that you can qualify. And so that's where our refugees and asylee laws were birthed. So in this moment, we can't just look at what's happening in America. We need to look at worldwide and why did the refugee and asylee laws get established? It was because we recognized that people are pushed out and we need to figure out how to assimilate them or to repatriate them depending on what is you know what is happening in their in their context so the united states we have borders we have ref there's refugee camps across the world and basically a refugee and an asylee are the same except that a refugee is someone who lives in a different country and has the opportunity to apply. You can't ask to be resettled as a refugee, but you can be considered by an independent group to say, you know, we're going to, we're going to resettle you in the United States. We're going to resettle you in Germany. We're going to resettle you know, all around the world. There's different countries that accept refugees. Asylees, asylum seekers actually have to come to an actual border. And it's not just in the United States, but all over with the pact around asylum is you come to the border and say, I am, I am having these problems and, and I, I need, to seek refuge. I need to seek asylum. And so we have a process for that. What is happening right now and has been happening the last couple of years is our country is just inconvenienced um, by the fact that the world is, you know, pushing and pulling and we've got people at our borders. We are able to take a lot of people through every single port of entry, about 750 people through multiple ports of entry a day is what we can do, but we shut our borders down. We shut our borders down and it doesn't matter what you're fleeing. We have created camps and we've created rules. And, um, and I say rules because laws uh, are what Congress puts together and then departments are able to interpret those laws the way they want and enact rules. And so right now there, the immigration policy sits in, in the nebulous places, all these rules have been changed, especially in the last four years to basically keep people out. And, you know, for good or for bad, that is the United States response to what's happening in the world is we're keeping you out. Refugee numbers are set by presidential determination. It's recommended that around 90,000 refugees be settled in the United States a year. And when you look at that number, that's about one half then of 1% of the world's refugee population. So we don't take very many people, but this year... We're going to take 18,000. So every year we see that number go down drastically. And so that people who are really suffering and we, we actually need them for our economy, we're not allowing them in. And then the same thing that's happening at our border. That's an unprecedented time that we are not following global as well as our own refugee and asylee laws. That's one of the issues around immigration. The other one is, is that we have always struggled. Let me just say this. This is our season to steward. If you look at immigration history in the United States, I think we all have this nostalgic get to, you know, you come and you come with all of these papers and permission and, and you'll, you know, you work through the process and we come in line, you know, the legal way. The reality is there was no illegal way before um, 1888. And that was um, the Chinese Exclusion Act. So my family is of, of Italian, and I've got some German and Irish in me as well. And I, I have sort of the Ellis Island stories. And that was pretty much, unless you, pretty much anybody who made it to the borders could get in. 
And in 1924, things changed. And, and that's fine. We are a country of laws and we have the right to determine who should and shouldn't be here. And every time we've had some type of law, it's emotional. It's, re, you know, it creates fear. It's like, wow, there's too many people here. They're going to change our culture. That's a very common response, not just for the United States, but, you know, since you have Christian listeners or people who are familiar with the church, I'll say it goes back to just humanity. And if, I don't know if you remember the story, just even Moses and the Exodus, that during that time, you know, the Egyptians were very happy to have Abraham and Abraham, the family of Abraham with him. And then as the numbers continued to increase, there was a fear like they're going to take us over. So I think there's a natural fear of, of people that are different than us. And you see some of those same fears played out in immigration policy in the United States. So immigration policy has never been super easy because we have to work on fear, but it is often you're able to get good laws in place because fears are not always rational, right? And we need to realize that mostly immigrants, statistics show that they want to come and they want to work and they want to, you know, get themselves educated, their kids educated. I mean, there's just lots of different paths to come through and, and then there's some paths that are needed to be created. And so we've got, we don't have a system right now that allows people to, you know, make their status correct. And I mean, there's a lot to immigration policy. Sometimes I'm the worst podcast person because I know too much and I want to get into the granular. <laughs> but I would say right now, we're not working with our global partners. We are shutting down our borders at a time of incredible need. We have a lot of undocumented people in our country that have no way to set their status correct. Many, many of them are young people who were brought up in our schools and our school system. And because they were brought here as children and now our adults are still, you know, brought as children and our young people, there's no way to make their, their situation right. We often call, you know, refer to them as the dreamers. And then there are people who own homes and own businesses and don't have status. They've been here for 20, 25 years or more. They have U.S. citizen kids and grandchildren and they still, there's not a way to a path to that is there right now in law to enable them to make make it right, you know, come out of the shadows, sort of pay a fine, get a background check, and figure out how they can move forward. So, so there's some glitches in our law. I mean, it's it's always challenging. I don't know if you know anybody who's tried to marry somebody who's not a United States citizen. I, I, I mean, I don't want to <laughs> joke around because nothing is light about it, but that's like all of the easy. It's a very hard way. It's very hard to adjust your status even through marriage. And adoption, but those are all the easiest of all the hard legal ways to get here. So there's no easy solution, um, but but that's really what's going on is we just have very little political will to fix the problems that we know are there, and we're creating some more globally. Yeah. Oh my goodness, you you just touched on so many things that we've been hearing from so many of our um, podcast guests in the series, and. Um, and I do just love how you painted the picture that immigration in America, it just cannot ever be separated from what's going on around the world. So I have listeners in Australia that are dealing with immigration issues that look kind of similar and yet have its own, you know, Australian flair. And then there's friends of mine who live in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where they get a lot of refugees and um, places like Iran and throughout the Middle East and the Muslim world that kind of end up there. And then there's and we have listeners in Europe and Europe has, you know, a slew of different nuance there as well. And so when we're talking about immigration in the U.S., it's certainly not in a, in isolation from what's going mm -hmm. on around the world. And, you know, you did mention, um, as you talked about, you know, the story 
in the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah that some people refer to it as, or the Taurat for our Muslim friends, um, you know, the story of Moses and the people who were there enslaved in Egypt and just how that whole fear was created when they started having more babies and getting, you know, a larger population. And, um, and I think one of the questions I really am interested in you answering is, what are some of the misconceptions you feel like we have um, about immigrants that you would like to clear up that do cause people to be afraid? Yeah. Oh, there's so many misconceptions. I, I, I don't want to drill down to the granular. I, I want to start kind of where I was speaking, Ted, is the misconception is sometimes the problem is us and our fear. Nobody who's operating mm-hmm. in fear and worry and concern for the security of our country, whatever the things that are shared, they're not usually saying it thinking, well, I'm really afraid and that's why I need to do this. They're just saying, no, this is the right thing. And I just want to say fear, we have to check our fear as Americans. We have to wonder, um, and I'm, I'm speaking in, in, in sort of the American lens right now, is it motivated by, t- by fear? And if it is, then let's try to figure out how we can get more facts. So basic human psychology, you know, that back of the brain, when you hear something, you're afraid that fight or flight mechanism gets going. And the only thing to calm that down is good information through the frontal lobe. That's just the basic mechanics of how the brain works. And when we only get, you should be afraid, you should be afraid, and we don't have good information, um, then we continue to perpetuate not only fear, but lies. So we need good information. So I think one of the common misconceptions is we don't realize we're a part of the problem and that our lack of understanding of economics and how people really assimilate into our country and what they do for it, they just don't realize it. And so we shouldn't be so quick to shut things down. That's, that's definitely one of the misconceptions. Uh, we want a robust economy. A robust economy means we need a robust workforce. We honestly can't provide that with just Americans. We never have. You know, that's sort of the story of America, right? As we came over and settled, more and more different, you know, cultural groups came and they came with a lot of scrutiny. You know, I, I referred to being Italian American, you know, with the first for the first piece of legislation in the United States at the federal level was the the Chinese Exclusion Act. So everybody except Chinese were allowed to come. And, you know, then you start to see the Irish Catholics. Oh, my goodness, everyone was so freaked out because it was a Protestant nation. You know, and now what are the Catholics? And we've got, you know, Eastern European Jewish people and we've got Italian American, Italians rather, and, and Mexican. You just kind of go through the litany of, of different different people groups. And so I think it, it's important for us to know that this isn't the story of now. This is the story of the United States of America. And then there's this whole story of, of being a Christian and, and wanting to welcome people and welcome strangers. And that's through the Old Testament and Testament. So there's, there's some misconceptions. Um, like I said, you need to get good information about the economy, economics. I think there's a lot of fear of safety and security and that when people want to look at legal immigration, you got to be careful of all of the news which oh people are for open borders so we 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 work in hyperboles and so that's a really hard thing yeah. as well and and immigration immigrants are my neighbors and friends and many people who are afraid either don't know any immigrants or they just trust the ones they know and and that's why I would challenge this like you you need to be careful that you're not stereotyping misinformation and, and just resisting in your heart something you know that has a lot to to teach and benefit us um, overall so I think that we we see that immigrants not only are more entrepreneurial um, that they're they actually are 
it's it's a lower chance of them to commit crimes. <laughs> There's just a lot of really bad information out there. So to say misinformation, that is pretty much the leading line of of that day is you need to challenge your own fear and you need to get better information or you're never going to be able to think about this in a way that is productive. Wow, that's so good. Yeah, I, you know, my husband and I today, it's our day off and we're in Pismo Beach in California. It's a beautiful <laughs> foggy day here and really nice. But as we were driving down from Silicon Valley where we live, um, you know, we passed along, you know, the very traditional California scene where you have a lot of farmland mm -hmm. here. A lot of our food in the United States comes from the state of California. And when you pass these fields and it was a pretty hot day when we were driving, we have, you know, immigrants that are out there picking the food mm -hmm. and no shade and it's it's a it's a really mm -hmm. there are difficult conditions and I just look at that like such a an example to me of what mm -hmm. it means to work hard like I I'm inspired by that level of grit and tenacity and um and I just think you know some of the people because like you said immigrants are also in the Silicon Valley we're very diverse and they're my friends they're my neighbors and and there's so many different kinds of immigrants, but there's there's so much for us to learn from them. And so I think there there's a whole conversation around instead of the fear of what they're going to take from us is just flipping that completely and be in a posture of what are we going to learn from them? What are they coming to teach us? Um, you know, the whole conversation around even as, as Christians in the church, like what we can benefit from le from learning stories from Central Americans coming who have really suffered and learning what it means to suffer and, and the theology around suffering. There's just, there's a lot that we can learn. Um, but at the same time, I think that your conversation that you touched on, cause I know that you've also um, maybe been involved with Denver seminary and teaching yeah, I classes. Teach, Is that I, right? They had a justice and mission program. And so I teach um, political advocacy at Denver, in Denver seminary. Yeah. Okay. Cause I think that conversation around like what, why is it important to care for immigrants? I mean, both from a faith perspective, but even just for a human perspective, why do you think it is important for us as a nation, as a society around the world, wherever we live to care for immigrants? Well, you know, let me, let me, I forgot one big misconception and <laughs> I may have hinted to it is, which is yeah, go there's a it. misconception that the system works and that immigrants are just trying to curtail it that they don't want to pay taxes, that they don't want to get in line. There's no line. And actually 75% of immigrants pay federal, not just their state tax, taxes, but you can go on the IRS website, fill out an I-10, which is, you know, how the I-9, it's a tax identification number. And if you don't have a social security number, which undocumented immigrants do not, you will be given a number so that you can pay your taxes. So they pay in and they never receive any of the benefits. And it's over 75% of an, the, our, our undocumented population um, pays taxes that way. So, so there's this misconception that people are trying to steal from us. They won't pay taxes. They don't want to become citizens. They don't want to get go th legally well honestly there's just no way to do it and so we need to we need to fix fix the system you know immigrants are just human beings and and so when we say why should we care about human beings we should care about human beings because we're human beings and we're supposed to be doing that that's just the you know that's just a part of even outside of our faith, even people who aren't even operating there's a the spark of divine that recognizes that you know we're supposed to care for one another 
And but in, so immigrants are no different in the sense that they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and and be recognized that they're not inferior. That sometimes they speak a different language and don't always know what's going on in in a language they don't understand, of course, and culturally. But that doesn't mean they're not intelligent and and have a lot to offer. So, you know, some of that's a just a really important thing for us to recognize is they're not that different than us. It feels like they are because they've got so many different practices and dress. And, but really, at the end of the day, they care about their family they care about love you know being loved and loving others I mean that it's just there's a common thread of humanity so we need to treat everybody you know with respect and and human dignity I think one of the things we need to acknowledge especially immigrants who are new to a country um, and when I say new within the first decade is they're very vulnerable they don't know the systems I have a young man who lives with us and he's from Nicaragua and you know I sat down and I was we've been helping him in different ways and trying to explain things and I don't think the American way of doing things is is better. But if you're going to live here, you're going to have to understand how banking, you can't, you know, you've got to understand the systems. And so, because otherwise you're going to be taken for, you know, advantage of, and you won't be able to do well. And all this work that you're doing may not get you as far as you could have gotten. And so I would say that there's a vulnerability for all of us. If we left our culture, left our, you know, first, a place where our first language was spoken and we had to all of a sudden start over again. And that very reality and let's say that it became, they just left because it was an adventure and they wanted it. But many people, a majority of people are leaving because they're fleeing something. So there's a ton of trauma and there's a ton of grief and the goodbyes that they had to say and the reality that they may never be able to go home. Then there's the atrocities that, you know, many of the people I've known and, you know, live alongside trying to get here and then living in the shadows here. So, so people are vulnerable because they're human beings, just like all of us. And they're, they're running from something that is dangerous or um, puts them in a vulnerable, you know, posture. And then they come to a country like ours that says, well, we don't want you, but if you do come, you know, we better not get caught because we really love cheap tomatoes. Like you were talking about farm workers, or we really appreciate you. We don't maybe appreciate, but we need you putting our roofs on in hundred degree weather. And there's just a lot of different attitudes that we really need to work on internally, but we need to recognize that immigrants are vulnerable not because they're weak people. They're very strong people, actually, very resilient. But this is not their culture, and they need some assistance to help them, you know, not leave their culture behind, but be able to function in our society and, and succeed, which is what they want to do. I've never met an immigrant who says, man, I'm just going to hold out and hope I don't have to learn the American, you know, money system. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ridiculous. Oh my goodness. That's so true. It's such a good reminder that instead of um, this whole rhetoric that they're coming to attack us or hurt us, that so many of them are just vulnerable. And um, this is our opportunity to, to do the right thing. And like you said, they're human beings, we're human beings. And that's just a really good reminder of like how you worded all that. Let's step into this whole conversation around just some of the nuances of the different types of ways people mm -hmm. immigrate into the United States right now. And some of the, you, you like going into the systemic issues and how to problem solve those. And so if we talk about, you know, the different ways to come in, we mentioned some of it earlier. Some people in the Silicon mm -hmm. Valley where I live are on these mm -hmm. H-1B visas and tech. And then, um, you know, you have people that are asylum seekers, which is largely shut or shut down at this point. Um, and then we have, um, you know, students, obviously international students, mm -hmm. which was at risk, you know, a little while back um, recently. And then, you know, like we have, like you said, people who are wanting to marry a U.S. citizen, like next, actually next weekend, I'll be officiating a wedding of a 
friend of mine, a woman from Texas, and she's marrying another friend of mine from India. Um, and, you know, it's it's exciting to see uh, in America that we we have these kind of, you know, situations where people can marry each other. But we also have spouse issues where someone might come to the U.S., but their spouse is in another country and they can't get here. And those are really heartbreaking situations. So when we look at all of those different kinds of ways to become an immigrant in the U.S. right now, like systemically, what are some things that you would hope could change in the near yeah. future about Well, all that? I think even the United States is a sovereign country. It has every right to defend our borders. I think, you know, back a few years ago, um, we were watching in, this is before our borders started to get clogged and we closed them. We were watching a lot happen in Europe, right? And there were, the European Union is very different than the United States. The ability to cross borders is a little bit easier. And I think, I think that that is actually yeah. an important piece of, of this conversation is we're not just a sovereign country. We, we have more military than anyone. Like we, that's a huge investment. No one is going to come and attack us um, from our southern border. Nobody ever has, you know. <laughs> Nobody ever has. It just isn't happening. It's yeah. not usually terrorists are, are very well funded. They come and they blend in. I mean, they do not cross in a desert and hope they make it. It just isn't, it's not even a practical argument. And yeah. so, so I, I just want it to be said in, in no uncertain terms, the United States is protecting its borders. It's over militarizing and it's making problems that don't exist, but it is protecting and people do not have to be afraid. They didn't have to be afraid 10 years ago. They didn't have to be afraid 20 years ago. They don't have to be afraid now. Nothing has really changed. Um, little bits here and there. But our, our country ha ha can defend its borders, and it has. And, um, and that is one of the ways we defend our borders is we choose who comes and who doesn't come. And I don't think it's a bad thing to make things challenging. You always are weighing in what you're bringing in and what you are, you know, keeping out. And we aren't, nobody, nobody is calling for open borders. We need to be judicious. And so when you talked about just a couple of the visas or just a couple of the ways in the immigrant, and I'm not an immigration lawyer. I just work with a lot of them. I'm in the, I do public policy and really just work with leaders that are impacted directly by problems and helping them, you know, get on a political agenda and be a part of the solution. But, but lawyers will tell you that immigration law and all of the different entry points is very complicated. I remember one lawyer saying it's, they call it alphabet soup. You mentioned an H1A, um, I think. Well, there's H2Bs and there, I mean, they're everything, there's so many, all the different letters. They went through all the letters and they started up again and, um, you know, have, have double letters and numbers just because there's so many different ways to get into the United States. And I am not a critic of making it challenging. Many aren't. We think, you know, earning an opportunity to be a citizen is exactly, if I went to a different country that I wasn't born there, I can't demand citizenship, but I can earn it, right? I should be able to work my way to, you know, try to be something else. Um, and, and that's what we have roughly in the United States, except that it's just, it's okay to be challenging, but, but the question is, is it unjust? And who is unable to and why? If it's, oh, well, we're trying to keep criminals out and it's hard for them. Well, that's a completely different story, but that's not the situation that we're looking at. I don't know if you saw the news in this last week, you know, 545 kids are still permanently separated from their parents because of some dumb rule we decided to put in to try to discourage moms and kids who were fleeing gang violence all of the things that qualify you for asylum, we thought we'd punish them even more. You've pushed out of your country. You've traveled alone. There's some horrors that happened along the way. You come to our border. We take your child and we never give it back. 
it is okay for people to have to come and we have what's called a credible fear hearing. The way the system's supposed to work is you come to the border and you say, I have a credible threat. Through translators, you, you explain what's going on and you have a series of court hearings to see, is your threat, does it meet the threshold of asylum? But what we, we did two and a half years ago we didn't, not only did we not do that, we said, oh, you want, you want to ask for help? Well, we'll take your kid. And you go, you okay with that? Because we're taking your kid. Otherwise we're sending you all the way back. We don't even care. And those are the kinds of questions that make the system unjust is that we are being punitive to the poor for sure. We're being punitive to some, but then we're being completely disregarding to others. So if you have a million dollars and you want to start an American business and you guarantee to hire 10 American employees, you can come tomorrow and get, it's no problem. There's, there's, it's no problem. We are happy to take your money. We are happy for you to employ U.S. citizens. And even if you've, you don't need us or, you know, we're happy to do that. That's when you begin to wonder, do we really care about people? Do we have a system that's just? Are we creating impossible burdens and barriers for some, making it easier for others? And then are there some that we just refuse to make away? And that's what we have seen perpetuated with our undocumented population. We have about 11 million people in our country today that are undocumented, and over 80% of them have been here for more than 20 years. What ended up happening was back in 2007, I don't know if you remember any of this, but President Bush was um, trying to create a comprehensive immigration legislation so that we could fix this problem. And the reason he wanted to do it before he was leaving office in the White House was because during his tenure, the World Trade Center bombings had happened and, you know, we had put in what's called the Department of Homeland Security. So we, we had a system before 2001 that was pretty broken, that really didn't create paths for undocumented people who were working and trying to, you know, get here and, and move forward from green card to citizenship. We didn't have a system that worked for that. Um, we, we basically said, we want your work. We just don't want you. You know, we're not going to create a system that we can have you, but you better stay here and keep doing the work. And, and that was a very unjust, it's still like that today, but this un injustice. And then the terror, terror attacks happen. And we create the Department of Homeland Security, which created more bureaucracy to keep people out, which came from a good place. But now the people who were here or, or not here, there was a lot of families that got separated. And so President Bush was trying to kind of fix what the department, the unintended consequences of the Department of Homeland Security was hurting, you know, families, many, many immigrant families and um, keeping them apart from each other. And unfortunately that bill failed and we've been working ever since in different iterations of it to try to give people the opportunity to make things right. So in the systemic piece, we have to ask ourselves why or why not will we allow a solution to go forward? And I said something just earlier, and it is an American adage. Now, it could be a human one. I mean, maybe we could stop and think of all the different ways, but we see this in throughout our country where the people on the lowest end of that sort of the proverbial food chain. We see this, of course, with slavery. We see this, you know, with undocumented immigrants today, which is we continue to perpetuate. We want your work. We just don't want you. If you are contributing to a system that you can never benefit from, then we need, it's an unjust system and we need to make it right. And that's really it in a nutshell, right? 
the whole country, you know, the formation of the United States was you, you make us do all of this work in the colonies, you tax us in exorbitantly, and you don't even give us representation. That was what the United States was formed on. No taxation without representation. And here we perpetuate it regularly. We want your work. We want your money. We don't want you. And we're not going to create a way for you to be able to come into the most fullest expression of who you're supposed to be. And that's really, there's a lot of different avenues of that kind of leads back to the systemic piece, but that's it in a nutshell is the system that says we want your work, but we don't want you is a system that's unjust. And that's what we need to address. Wow. I just felt that when you said we want your work, but we don't want you. And I think for anybody who's listening, you know, I've had, you know, little moments in my um, working life where I felt sort of that way. And um, yeah, I think if you've ever felt that way, it, it, it's not a sustainable situation for you health-wise. Um, and, and we just don't want to be a nation that's treating any human being in that way. And I think, you know, when you bring back up the, the origins of what we talk about in our U.S. history when, you know, some of our first immigrants came to this nation, you know, um, fleeing uh, a system they felt wasn't just. And so that's kind of like the whole mm-hmm. what, what's going on in the whole mm-hmm. Hamilton musical, which is really popular right now. Um, it's just a good reminder to go back to those those stories of what um, if we really are wanting to make America great, if, if it's not considered great at this point. Um, I think it really is so important to dig into those stories. And we have an opportunity at this point to to look into it as insiders, not as outsiders. How would that feel? Put yourself in someone else's shoes. And maybe you've been in a situation like that before where you felt people wanted your work, but not wanted you. So I, I think that the next question I want to ask is um, I know that you yourself personally are, you want, um, you want to have the conversation about what's broken. And then you also want to give people practical ways that they can be involved in, um, you know, small personal ways to be a part of helping change the situation with immigrants and also systemic ways. And I, I know that for you, um, one of the systemic ways you were hoping to melt, make some mm-hmm. changes was um, in your run for Senate, which would have been a really high level systemic opportunity for you, um, which didn't work out in this case. But um, in other areas, both um, whether, um, whether it means somebody needs to run for Senate or maybe it means somebody needs to be involved in other systemic ways or small ways. So walk us through that kind of micro yeah. and macro picture. <laughs> yeah, not everyone has to run for U.S. Senate. It's a big deal. <laughs> costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time. And I mean, it's fantastic. And in many ways, I felt like as I was running the, the nine months that I was in the race, it was just like, this is exactly what I've been trained for. But, um, but that is not that is not the solution. And, and we don't need everybody to run for United States Senate to, to fix a broken system. You know, the reality is, is that we are, this is the public sector. This is the United States government that's supposed to be by people and for people. And those are questions are how you know, by the people, what are we doing to invest in our system of government, in our, not just the making of laws. We don't make laws. We have a representative democracy, but we influence. We influence by making sure that the right people are on the ballot, not just who you vote for. By the time, by the time you decide who you vote for, I'm not going to say it's not important, but it's already been done. You know, like yeah. how do good people get on the ballot? You know, what, how do we really invest in something that's supposed to be by the people? Or are we just rolling over and allowing a certain kind of person to call all the shots? Are we allowing people with the most money? 
um, the people that have always held it um, in position. And when I say that I'm a woman and I was running for a position, no woman has ever held a U.S. Senate seat in the state of Colorado. We've only had men. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, obviously I'm married to a husband, I'm married to a man and I've got two, two sons. So it's not, it's not a, a us versus them. But I, I also think, you know, by the people, does it look like the people, you know, for as, as proud as we are at times of our very diverse country in our U.S. Senate and House, we have 535 seats and I think 129 are held by women. And, you know, very, very low uh, people of color and, and different backgrounds. So so that's some of it is we need to make sure that is it really by the people and it's not just who holds office, but, you know, how we put the agendas on those who hold office from from really important, but but smaller kinds of things um, with regard to education, local local school funding, um, judicial district appointments, you know, those kinds of things all to the big stuff. That's really important. The by the people, then it's for the people. Is is the is it really serve the people? And 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 if it doesn't, we should be challenging it. You know, I keep telling us we get the society and the government that we invest in. And if we haven't done anything but vote, I mean, vote, please vote, please vote, please vote. But that is the lowest hanging fruit of civic engagement. We need to do a little bit more than that if we really want to have a system that reflects our values. Because when we pretty much just roll over and give somebody the mic um, and allow them to dictate how things are going to go, we should not be surprised that we've lost control. So, so that's something that, that is just sort of an everyday, we cannot just live for ourselves. We need to live for others. And that includes the public square. And I think for, for the Christian faith, I, I, I was a part, I, when I was a young kid, uh, private Christian schools started popping up in response to white flight. And Boy, interesting growing up during that era in the 70s and the 80s and and just this idea of being afraid of the darkness and shaming the darkness, which is antithetical to the Christian faith. I can't speak of other faiths, but I do know it's antithetical to the Christian faith where we're told we're supposed to be the light of the world, that we're supposed to take that light and shine it in the darkest of places, not retreat. And so all types of oppression and injustice need to be challenged with light. It needs to be brought into the light, but it won't be unless we get there. So, so that is, we have to kind of overcome our selfishness, our, our fear, our arrogance, that it's not worth our time and realize that we don't just get a just society that, you know, that that is something that we need to invest in as far as, you know, some more issue-based things like immigration is I, I would not start studying immigration policy. Please don't. That's just not, it's not, we, we don't not have good immigration laws because there are people that are, just not smart enough to figure it out. I mean, I it, we got plenty of ideas and from different sides. What we need are people to actually know immigrants. Mm. We need to know immigrants. We need to go all beyond our own experience. You know, there's a lot of different Pew Research um, polls. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I write about it in my book, The Power of Proximity, but talks just basically that, and it was, you know, looking at white people, that mostly white people, they know a few people of color, but almost all of their activities, birthday parties and, you know, social networks and churches, that it's predominantly one culture, their culture. And since right now we're the dominant culture and we, we hold a lot more um, influence and power, and if we're upset about the systemic injustice, and we should be, then we need to really challenge ourselves. What am I doing? Not just to invest into the civic engagement piece, but how am I investing in people and who am I investing in? Am I even trying to get to know people that look different than me? Am I, you know, even, would I even be willing to drive down a street in a tie to town? Like, like the kind that I live in, where there's just so many people from all over the world. So I would say we, we need to just challenge ourselves. And I talk about that a lot in my book, The Power of Proximity, because it's important for us to be aware 
of systemic oppression and injustice, but we, we can't stay at an awareness. We need to move to an action and you cannot move to an action that is redemptive or in solidarity if it's not with the people who are directly impacted. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm grateful, uh, you know, that people want to put Black Lives Matter signs on their front lawn and talk about justice. But I really want to challenge, like, let's talk about living a just lifestyle and how many black people have you talked to about this? Mm. You know, like, you can't, you can't truly change your own heart and the hearts of others from a distance. You just can't do it. You yeah. cannot read books and have conversations with white people and hope that you're going to get an anti-racist attitude. That just doesn't work that way because we don't understand how deep it goes. I always say, you know, you always have to deal with your demons. I have been living in, um, I lived in an African-American community, now Latino community for the last 27 years. Most all of my, you know, relationships and work relationships are with people of color, but I still need to deal with my white superiority and supremacy. I just have to. It goes that mm-hmm. deep. And I would think somebody who is so self-actualized, I mean, people are like, I, if you can't, well, you know what? That's what it means. It's rooted there. Mm-hmm. We've got we've to rip it out. And it takes so much work. And it doesn't happen from this, you know, arrogant, even arrogant liberal side, which is a lot of people that I stand alongside and with. And I'm just like, you, you can't just condemn and shame the other side. You actually, you know, the people who are, are the racists or whatever, because you have your Black Lives Matter t-shirt on. Just like, how have you showed a true investment in Black Lives? And that's really what it gets to with the systems is that we cannot talk about systemic injustice anymore. We need to join the movement and resist the behaviors and we need to resist the, the theories and resist the practice and resist the policies that perpetuate the need for the movement. I watched, mm. I watched so many people marching with us. It was great. It was great. Cause when Mike Brown passed away and, and I had a black lives matter t-shirt, you would have thought I was the devil himself, you know? So I'm like, okay, apparently this <laughs> is the thing to do now. Mm-hmm, pretty cool. You know? And I was at a lot of different marches. That's what happens when you're an activist. You're at a lot of marches, whether they're popular or not. And, <laughs> and I just kind of looked around and I thought, wow, these people, this is the very first time. You can tell it's their first time. They literally don't know what they're doing. And they don't even know the respect and how to do, you know, like it's just a, it was real interesting. And I'm glad, but I, I just kept thinking, you know, you guys don't really know what you're joining. This is not a one and done thing. This isn't like, oh, I just got woke and so now it's an opportunity to perform and now everything will be fixed. So this is a deep grief work. Justice mm. is a long, long work. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. talked about that. The, the, arc, yeah. the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And so I just say it's, we're glad to have you join. But remember yeah. that this is not your Rosa Parks moment. That if you're allowed in the bus that you're in the back on the floor and keep your mouth shut. You know, like you, you got to serve the movement. You got to stay at the mm. table. It isn't about you and your feelings and things that you might get hurt. I mean, systemic injustice work is a beautiful, important, important work, but it is a lifestyle work. It is not a talking point. Yeah, that's so good. It's such a good reminder for this generation, um, especially, I mean, I think for several decades in the United States, we, at least because I've lived overseas most of my life as a U.S. citizen, and I think broadly around the world, the U.S. has a reputation of being this very McDonaldized culture where everything has to be fast food and fast. Mm-hmm. And so if it doesn't happen fast, especially in 2020, where we have 
all these devices and everything is so quick um, that people kind of move on. And as you said, this is a long work. It takes stepping lightly, stepping steadily, but not taking a step back, you know, keep moving forward together. And it's not something one person alone could ever accomplish. And it's why we need each other. Um, and it's, it's just, it's really beautiful to hear you describe it that way, because I, I just, I'm pretty sure there's people listening to this podcast today and all different places around the world that would be considered a majority person in their mm. culture. And if mm. you're listening and you're a majority person, like whether you're, you know, in Singapore and you are a Chinese Singaporean, or maybe you're, I have a friend here at church in the Silicon Valley who used to live in Singapore and she's British, but when she lived in Singapore, as a British person with a British accent and the British colonized Singapore. And so that has Mm -hmm, a whole different mm -hmm. weight. And she just, she refused to live and walk and make the majority of her time be among Brits because she knew that she would never really know the true Mm -hmm. Singapore because of all that the weight that that carried. And so just being intentional, that intentionality, um, it involves not just being friends with people and being near people who are um, the min- minority people as a majority person, but it means being very teachable, like intentionally teachable and seeking out the wisdom of, of teachers of people who are minorities because their voice and their perspective will be radically different. And it's something we can all benefit from. And it's certainly been just one of the things that has enriched my life the most. One of the reasons I do this podcast is I just think listening to voices that are not my own just really helped me, especially minority voices. So in light of that, I want you to leave us if you're um, able to think of a story, a compelling story of an immigrant that would um, teach us something somehow about um, what it means to be an immigrant, something that would compel us to take action and not just talk about the things we're talking about, but to really move our hearts and our minds toward um, what it, what, what immigrants really need from us at this point. So are there any stories you could leave us with? I have so many stories. It's really, really hard to choose. Um, just this story before I close that story, I just want to hit on something you said though, cause I don't, I don't want it to be missed, you know, in dominant culture, when you're a, a dominant in, you know, you're in the dominant part of that culture, you, there's a pressure to be a knower. And you, you kind of mentioned we want to learn and listen, and that's true. But I, I think the problem is, is that when you are a knower, it feels shameful to not know, to not have the edge, to look stupid, to mess up. I mean, that's kind of the privilege with being in the dominant culture. But we will never be able to build bridges of empathy and trust and respect if we cannot recognize that not only do we need to posture ourselves in a curious spot to learn, but in a vulnerable spot? So I want to learn from you because I'm, I could be wrong or I, not just, I could be wrong, but I really don't, I'm, I'm not the exception to the rules and not everything, you know, like there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of unpacking of shame and people hurt Mm -hmm. when they start to feel shame and they want to fight it and they want to defend themselves. And that's exactly what we see in race issues is, well, I'm going to just, well, I never Mm -hmm. owned slaves and I, you know, just defense. It's like, you know what, be vulnerable, try to own and try to see and try to recognize that it's that curious, vulnerable posture that will really enable you to capture things that you wouldn't if you don't, if you don't put yourself, but as a, as a dominant culture, white person, you know, I've been taught to be the knower. I've been taught to be on the top. It's very, it's very against, you know, my, my culture and the way I was like to be curious, to be vulnerable, to, you know, to 
allow myself to be vulnerable and not just own the shame and defense. So that, that's just something I had to say. You know, right now, you, mm, you asked okay. me, we started this podcast, you asked me what's going on now. So I'll tell you a story immediately, okay? So I have okay. a friend, <laughs> young friend, he's 23. And when he was 21, he was a student at the University of Nicaragua. And he marched a bunch of students from the University of Nicaragua. You probably can find it on the news. They marched um, kind of in protest. It was a peaceful protest against the government. And just some of the practices of the government. And his brother was one of the main leaders of it. And basically, in a nutshell, was targeted and was shot, shot and then died, um, killed, killed by the government. Yeah. And he spoke at he and his parents, they, they did, you know, spoke up and said, this is what happened and this is who did it. I, I watched the, you know, the, the video clip, very respectful, but it's not a safe place. And he got word they were coming for him too. And so he's 21. And he ran and he came all the way up from Nicaragua. So you have to look all through Central America and all along the way had quite an atrocious story, but quite an amazing journey as he found his way at the border um, of the U.S. and during the season in the last year and a half or so, two years. And we did not give him any justice. We basically took him. And he asked for help. He's a complete candidate for the asylum laws and being oppressed by it. His life is being threatened by the, the Nicaraguan government. And he was put in, he was incarcerated. He's incarcerated for 10 months. He didn't speak any English. He had no money. Um, he was put in an immigrant detention center until he awaited uh, a hearing. And he had a hearing to hear if it was credible. They found out, you know, it is credible. And so what they did was they left him with a $35,000 bond and a $500 a month ankle bracelet. What that means is he owes the U.S. government $35,000 just because, because maybe he won't show up for his court hearing. The reality is it's almost 100%, almost 100% of asylum seekers show up for their court hearings. This is not a nefarious group of people. They're trying to figure out how they can be protected here. But instead, we took a 22-year-old and we gave him a $35,000 bond and then a $500 a month ankle bracelet, and then said, you can't have a work permit. You have nothing. No way to earn money, but you better pay us now. And that's how we treat people. And what, so when I told you in the beginning that history will remember us for the 545 kids who still are separated from their parents, they will remember us for the thousands who were separated and returned. They will remember us for the $35,000 bonds and the indefinite $500 a month ankle bracelet that we have put on a 22-year-old to make them feel shamed because they were their, their brother was shot and killed by an oppressive government and they came within their legal right globally and even within the laws of the United States to ask for help. And that's what we did with your asking for help. This is a time we will be remembered for, and we will not be remembered kindly. Mm. Wow, that, that heart of that person and their family, I just can only imagine how overwhelming that must feel. I mean, we're, we're only, for the most part in the U.S., talking about things like how hard it is for our kids in online school right now and how they feel trapped and with all this anxiety, and it is a real problem. But it's kind of apples and oranges when you think about what a 22-year-old would be facing. And I, I just, it's so heartbreaking, that story. Hopefully everyone who's listening will feel compelled to 
do yeah. something. And it, not it is not a yeah, it is not a small thing to donate money. I'm just going to tell you right now, legal services. I mean, we need okay. money. You know, find find mm-hmm. groups. A lot of them are at the border. Um, you know, just do a little bit of research and don't minimize. Well, all I can do is write a check. Yeah, write a check because right now the government is literally abusing foreigners and we may not be able to change policies, but we can at least help them, um, you know, not be in more oppression and bondage. It's just so wrong. It's so wrong, Lori. And you know what? There's nothing good that comes out of it. There's literally nothing good. We don't really need his money. And, and frankly, he just gets to carry it over his head. His family, like, you know, they, they put, I think it was like 26 different people sent this, sent here or there, you know, for, so that he could have the certain percentage so that he could get out. But, you know, it's with interest. I mean, it's just a no-win situation. And, like, it's not his fault. He has not done anything wrong. Yeah. And he's a hard worker. I mean, he's great. Yeah. He's great. He's exactly what we need. Yeah, I'm and sure. that, I have so yeah. many stories. I remember years ago, somebody, I was talking to a pastor, and we're talking about it. He's like, you know, Michelle, I want you to come speak in the church, but I really, I just want you to, I just stopped with the sad immigrant stories. <laughs> I'm like, dude, <laughs> we're talking about a broken system here. Yeah, there's some good immigrant stories, but this is a majority of where the immigrants and the poor are living with these sad stories because we're making it so hard and we don't have to. We don't have to. Let's, yeah. let's do practical, smart policy that keeps people safe. Even the immigrants I know are coming. They don't want people, you know, they're coming to our country and asking for help because they know the United States government is going to stop the evil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I hope this story does sit and stir within us because that's what it's Good. meant to do. There's this uh, Franciscan blessing that I was reading on Sunday when I was doing this training um, for some of our leaders at our church on um, trusting and having faith during pain and suffering. And I ended with this Franciscan blessing, which is basically sort of like a prayer of blessing that we would sit Mm -hmm. with the hard because there's a blessing there to help us be Mm -hmm. problem solvers. Um, You know, bless us, God, with tears so that we can feel the pain of what's going on, because if we don't, this is a choice, right? You've given us a story. You've given us information today. And with this information, we can either look away and ignore it and pretend everything's fine and not get involved, or we can make the choice to be people who are helping bring change. And for those of us who are in any particular seat of privilege, whatever that looks like, um, I really think the burden is mostly on us. And so, like you said, voting is one small part. Um, donating money is another way. And so just thank you for all the things you shared with us today. If people want to find you um, and read your book and all those things, can you tell yeah, people where to find you? Yeah, you can look at my you? really sick website. That I mean, sick in all the bad ways, not the good ways. Um, yeah, no, I'm actually <laughs> really easy to find. Um, I wrote a book called The Power of Proximity. And, it, and the subtitle is Moving Beyond Awareness to Action. And I, I usually say, you know, talk of justice is a good start, but it's cheap. Talk is cheap. It's really how do we challenge ourselves to live a just lifestyle? And then if we really care about the issues people face, then we really need to, instead of worrying about the issue, let's worry about the people. Let's get to know and build relationships with people. And not everyone's going to do what I did. I don't expect everybody to move into, you know, leave their, their white gated community <laughs> and move into yeah. a community with the poor and, and work and worship and send your kids to local public schools. That was a pretty radical um, decision for us. And I'm so grateful. I, I, I'm so grateful. But 
so I wrote a, a little bit about that journey, but in my, in this book, but really more just practical ways to move beyond awareness to an action that doesn't create more harm. People who genuinely want to embrace systemic injustice, we just don't always know how to do it. And so I don't want to create more harm. So that was sort of a, a primer of how do we move beyond an awareness of racial injustice and poverty into an action that actually, you know, joins people and their suffering to, to work on justice and, and moving just, um, policies and just communities and, and beloved community really forward. So, so that's that. I mean, you can find it on Amazon for sure, but I do have a website. If you wanted to contact me, you can put something in the contact and an email will come, but yeah, it's at michelleferignowarren.com. So my book has my name. I can spell it for you. I got a, a big old Italian name there in the middle, um, but Michelle and then Ferrigno is F-E-R-R-I-G-N-O warren.com. And you can find me on my website. You can follow me on on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at MCF Warren. And I'd love to connect with you. I'd love to connect with you. Feel free to reach out. Um, yeah, I think it's that's the only way we're going to get a little bit farther is if we have sincere efforts moving towards a, a very just lifestyle that, that recognizes the human dignity and need for equity in the world. Well, thank you so much. It's just been an honor and a privilege. I've learned so much today. And um, I just... I pray God's biggest blessings on you and the next phase of what he's asking you to do and how you're bringing Thank other you people Thank you so much, Lori. It was you. really great to be with you as well. Goodbye. Bye, Michelle. That story at the end, that one's going to sit with me for a few days. And wow, um, what Michelle has shared with us, it really is very thought-provoking. It, it, uh, it helps us to think through some of the nuances that maybe we hadn't considered anymore. But if you're like me and you're now just like, you know, wanting to move to whatever that zip code is that she mentioned that she lives at in Denver and just make a difference there or wherever we are, uh, I think it's important to remember that willpower will probably fail us if that's what we're expecting to help us make some of the small and big changes that we really want to see. We really do need a system and a systemic change. But even to make the change, we need, a, we need a system and a process that works. And I think part of that is just finding the right team of people around us. This is not a problem we can solve alone. We need each other. We need to be together. We need to overcome these problems together. And I, I'm pretty sure that's probably one of the reasons she felt compelled to even run for Senate. Because on a certain level, there are so many things we can do as individuals, even as a group of people, even for those of us who are part of faith communities within our faith community. But we really do rely on people in government to help make some of those changes, too. So whatever your space is, whatever your takeaway is, uh, you know, working for a community development organization like she has been for the past many years, maybe your route, maybe it's um, it's just something you do you know, on the side or through organizing people together and, you know, forming coalitions or, or whatever that looks like for you. But for this dream to become a reality, it's going to take strategic steps of change. And we do need a good process. And if we fail, that's okay. We can get back on track. But let's try to find a group of people who want to make a difference together and, and bring those around us. I encourage you to check out Michelle's book, The Power of Proximity, Moving Beyond Awareness to Action, published with InterVarsity Press in 2017. It's available everywhere books are sold. And check out her on social media and her website. She's really given us a lot to think about today. 
next week as we're all voting, either turning in our ballots early by mail or in person or voting on election day for those of us who are U.S. citizens, both in the U.S. and abroad. We're going to have a special guest, Eric Woodard, the one and only, who worked in the White House. He's my husband's best friend from high school at International School Bangkok. He's been living in D.C. for years and has a lot of inside experience on what it means to walk through an election, work for someone in the White House, and just why it's important to vote for all of our voices to be heard. So do not miss next week with Eric Woodard. Have a great week, and please vote, everyone. Bye-bye.